This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Jason Turner is a regular guest, the Chief Investment Strategist for Wintrust Wealth Management. Jason, welcome back. John, thanks for having me. Uh, your take on the Fed today. Well, the Fed's done what we expected them to do in terms of leaving rates stable uh, at their January meeting. Uh, they also followed through on expectations, softening their statement uh, to, in effect, a neutral stance. They've removed that tightening bias that has been a part of the, the Fed's every meeting statement for the last 18 months. Uh, it's what Chairman Powell said after the Fed released the official statement that I think uh, got markets rankled a little bit. And what was that? Uh, Chair Powell, instead of hugging the statement like you'd normally see a Fed chairman do, uh, and he certainly started the, his comments by doing so, he went a little off script in, in casting a lot of doubt around March being the first cut, uh, more pointing towards now maybe the May meeting or into the summer before the Fed considers cutting rates. Uh, really threw some cold water on, on traders' expectations that we'd get a rate cut in March and maybe a slight boost there to the equity markets. Why did he do that? Well, I, I think the Fed chairman has attempted to communicate, communicate clearly, and in, in some respects over-communicate for the entirety of his chairmanship. And the, the effort here was maybe to, to more directly communicate that the Fed, while they've gone to a neutral and they've opened the door to cutting rates, they are still concerned about inflation, still staying near the target, uh, and that they may not see enough data between where we sit on February 1st and where they meet in the uh, middle part of March uh, to make a policy decision. They would need more months' worth of data to be able to make that decision. You get the feeling that maybe they think, yeah, we can lower the rates, but what's the rush? Everybody wants six rate cuts this year, and maybe they don't care when those six rate cuts come. Is that true? Uh, to an extent, but to have six rate cuts this year, you'd have to have the Fed cutting at just about every meeting yeah. uh, from here on out. And the Fed told us that when they released their summary economic projections after the December meeting, that they were going to cut three times this year, not six. So that gulf of difference between what the Fed says and what the market believes is something that has to resolve itself over the course of the next few months. You think they're breasting their cards a little bit, though? Do you think it could be more than three? I, all told, the speed inflation is coming down. They are likely to cut more than three times, although the market's expectation for six seems a little excessive uh, at this point. Uh, what we don't want to have happen acceleration of inflation and cutting rates too quickly and too soon can certainly encourage that. On the flip side, we don't want to push the economy into a deep recession and acting too late would do that. So they've got to find that uh, Goldilocks, that, that just right approach to managing rates this year. And I, I think being conservative or safe, it doesn't necessarily mean not having a lot of rate cut this way. Wouldn't the smarter thing be to not Go, start cutting rates at every meeting. I mean, um, that might be disappointing to some people, but if you're worried about screwing this up, better to not have more rate cuts than to, to have too few. I would agree with that. It's better to go a little more cautiously, uh, to have the misstep be yeah. a slight shallow recession, if we even call it a recession, as opposed to getting the policy wrong on the other side and watching inflation screen back up to 6 and 7%. Uh, that just wouldn't sit well with consumers and would be much more detrimental to the long-term health of the American economy. And I wonder how much the strength of the economy is working against the hope for rate cuts right now. Oh, the strength of the economy is absolutely working against the hope for rate cuts. As, as we see 
stronger economic numbers, there is less and less motivation or data, and the Fed is data dependent. There's less and less data to support the Fed's idea uh, that we will eventually need to cut rates to keep Mm-hmm. The difference between rates and the economy uh, less restrictive than it maybe sits today. Boy, it does seem like we want our cake and want to eat it too, though, because if they did cut rates, even though the economy is pretty robust, the, I think the trickle-down would be extraordinary in terms of the housing market, debt service, all of those things. I mean, it will be a good thing if we lower interest rates, Right. It'd be a good thing uh, over the long run to see interest rates come down. They can't stay at this level for a long period of time without being economically detrimental. Uh, But there's certainly some pent-up demand. I think the American consumer has been far more robust than the Fed anticipated. Uh, As we move to the back half of 2023, they've taken higher mortgage rates in stride. Uh, They have not slowed down spending. In fact, consumer confidence continues to move higher. What about businesses, though, that would like to expand or, or get off the ground, but they, they're not going to borrow money at these rates? They're not. And businesses seem to be making a little bit more of an a intelligent short-term financing decision than consumers, where consumers yeah. are still spending. Businesses are being a little more cautious, although we're starting to see some movement. If you look at the small business surveys, Uh, We average about 15% of small businesses that would be exploring expansion, either organic or inorganic growth. We had gotten down to about 2% uh, in the middle to late part of last year of those small businesses that were considering expansion. We've jumped back up to six and now eight in the most recent survey. So that's moving up, but it's still not back to to average, still less businesses planning to expand uh, than the average. Jason Turner taking a look at the Fed, the Chief Investment Strategist for Wintrust Wealth Management. Nice to talk to you, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. Bree Fowler is a senior writer there. Bree, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I found myself getting agitated at everybody at that Senate hearing. I didn't watch it (laughs) entirely, but I saw a lot of the clips and I read about it. What should I know about that Senate hearing on social media yesterday? Well, it went on for a very long time, so I I doubt a lot of people outside of the Senate committee actually sat through the whole thing. But, um, you know, it it basically, you know, the CEOs and other officials from companies like Meta, TikTok, Twitter, slash X, um, testified in front of a congressional hearing. Um, They're, you know, people in politics and child advocates are very worried about, you know, that the kids are being exposed to evils like sexual predators, addictive features, you know, eating disorders, bullying, the list goes on and on all because of social media. There were a number of people there standing with pictures of their children. I presume those are children who have died and many of them by suicide. Is that right? That, that is correct. Um, it's definitely a, a moving display um, and a lot of kids have been affected, you know, when it comes to suicide, but also in lesser ways that are harder to document. Um, but this, this really put a, a visual <laughs> element to that. Um, and during the, the hearing, um, Mark Zuckerberg actually directly addressed those 
parents in the gallery and apologize for what they had been through after he was prompted by a senator, of course. Oh, I didn't understand that. I saw the video of him standing up, turning his back on the panel and addressing the people with the pictures and speaking directly to them, which I thought was pretty stand up of him. But did one of the senators say, would you do that? Yeah, that, that's exactly what uh, they said. Um, would you like to apologize to these parents? And, and he did. I mean, you kind of can't at that point, arguably. Yeah, it's funny because the interpretation I heard of that was was not so kind to Mark Zuckerberg. I guess the question I have for you is what was the purpose of the hearing? What do they want to do about this, the Congress? The Congress really hasn't figured that out yet. We've had a number of hearings like this, whether they've been about TikTok or Facebook or or whatever, um, you know, there, there are a couple different issues going here. You know, we're worried about just the content that kids are exposed to, but we're also worried that these panels are, these panels, these uh, platforms are designed to be addictive and suck kids in and that they end up spending all this time on them. And then, you know, you throw in the national security implications of things like TikTok and it's just, there's just so much going on there. Yeah. But, you know, Congress really hasn't figured out a way to regulate social media or if it, even if it really wants to. One of the senators said to one of the social media executives, are you or have you ever been a member of, uh, wasn't the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, I thought, really? You're going to ape Joe McCarthy? That sounds like a good idea. What a stupid thing to say. And, and, I mean, it may- Maybe if it was dealing with TikTok, that would that would make some yeah, sense. Yeah, right. But the guy goes, "Dude, um, I'm from that Singapore." Was the TikTok hearing. I know mm-hmm. it, it was. It, it, he looked Asian, so maybe he's a Chinese commie. <laughs> and I thought it's that sort of grandstanding, which I think is also a right. purpose of these hearings. That I think oh, sure. actually dilutes the potential power or impact of a meeting like that because you get mad at the senators too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of you know, trying to score points and get airtime and and get the attention of their constituents. I mean, there's an election coming up (laughs) and some of these guys have to, you know, justify their existence. But I feel like, you know, congressional hearings are all about that. Yeah, I guess. Uh, You know, rarely do you ever see legislation come out of them, I feel. Uh, Elon Musk's, uh, uh, the woman who is in charge of sales, who he brought on, and must love and hate her job every day, which they're testifying. Elon Musk was not. But he did put out this week that he wants to move the company headquarters from Delaware to Texas. Why is he, yeah. doing, why is he doing that? I mean, Elon Musk is all about grandstanding, too. Um, he is a little irked with the fact that a Delaware court has decided that he should not get a multi-billion dollar pay package. Um, originally, you know... Uh, he was supposed to get something like $55 billion from Tesla's board. Uh, and, you know, this this was five years ago um, where, uh, you know, this is something that uh, the board of directors had uh, had agreed upon as his compensation. But shareholders sued saying that, well, Musk controls the board. This isn't fair and this isn't, you know, a responsible way to spend money. Um, and the court has, you know, five years later, has ruled in the shareholders' favor. Now, you know, the appeals and who knows how that could actually turn out, but he just does not want to be incorporated in Delaware anymore and wants to move to Texas. He literally tweeted that, don't incorporate in Delaware. But actually, Delaware is a very tax-advantageous place to incorporate, right? 
Yeah, it's it's one of the most tax advantageous places. I mean, so many companies are headquartered in Delaware. Um, you know, back when I used to cover bankruptcies, you know, a lot of companies filed for bankruptcy there because that's where they were technically incorporated. Um, that said, you know, Texas is a very business-friendly state, and Tesla is already – it has its kind of brick-and-mortar headquarters there already um, in Austin, so maybe it might make sense for them anyway. Uh, talk about this cyber threat that the government is telling us may be coming, may be real, may be pervasive from China. What is this? Yeah. Uh, Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, testified uh, in front of House lawmakers yesterday about a botnet attack that the U.S. was able to disrupt. Um, this was uh, targeting small office and home routers owned by just you know normal people and companies that they say was perpetuated by the Chinese government. Um, you know, you have attacks like this; it could take down critical infrastructure. That's what they're worried about. You know, things like power plants, um, water treatment facilities. Um, you know, it, it's amazing what's considered critical infrastructure these days. And, and this has been, you know, a government worry for a long time that, you know, these soft targets could be susceptible to things like ransomware, but, but also botnet attacks. So Christopher Ray said that. Do we know, in fact, was that um, an effort by the Chinese government? And how serious was it? Was it a test salvo or were they really trying to do something disruptive here well you know you could argue it's a test that china is trying to get in position to uh, be prepared for if there was ever some kind of armed conflict between the u.s and china i mean there's been a lot of speculation about taiwan and what could happen there and how the u.s may or may not get involved with that um, chinese hackers i mean china has a huge state-sponsored hacking uh, operation. It, it rivals that of Russia, Israel, the U.S., um, countries like that. Um, but, you know, usually in the past it is focused on stealing intellectual property, intelligence, things like that. Um, attacking critical infrastructure would definitely be something new. And to be clear, though, so we thwarted that effort, or is that effort underway? Is that something happening right now? Well, the FBI says that they thwarted this attack, um, that they were able to disrupt this botnet. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean that there aren't other, you know, that China and, and other countries, too, don't have their feelers into, you know, other bots and other systems and, and things like that. Uh, we've, we've seen that in the past where, you know, Russian ransomware gangs have been able to, you know, remember Colonial Pipeline. It caused yeah. Um, yeah. pandemonium here because people thought there was a gas shortage. There wasn't even really a gas shortage, but it, when you have panic buying, there might as well be. Um, you know, one of the largest pork producers in the country also was shut down by a ransomware attack, um, and people thought that there were shortages and prices went up. I mean, it does not take much to throw, you know, critical infrastructure and just American society out of whack. All the more reason for us to pay attention to what's happening in Taiwan and to ramp up our own chip production, I would say. That's uh, fascinating. Bree Fowler is a senior writer at CNET.com. Bree, as always, fascinating. Thanks for your help. Thank you. I want to talk about uh, a way to travel 
Uh, let's visit with Kevin Smith now. Kevin Smith is with Sea Cloud Cruises. He is uh, an executive there, and he joins us on the Business Lunch. Hey, Kevin, you're on WGN. How are you? John, I'm doing great. Thank you for having us. Really excited to showcase uh, Sea Cloud Cruises to the people of the Chicago area. I have seen pictures of the ship or ships. I've seen at least one of them. What kind of boat are we talking about here? Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously the Chicago residents will understand this, being that you guys have a world-renowned yacht club. We are tall ship sailing vessels, so truly going under sail during the daytime. How many masts? So four on one of our vessels and then three on the others. I've seen these ships. I mean, they're magnificent. They're huge, uh, if you will, old world sailing ships. Um, so oh, yeah. Uh, how many people get on those boats? Yeah, so let's dive into the Sea Cloud, the original. She was built in 1931, and it was actually built by Marjorie Mayweather Post, who several people might know from Merlago. Um, so that was her family vessel, and in the 19, actually 1979, we took her over, refurbished her, and turned her into a sailboat. She only travels with 64 passengers, and essentially the guest-to-crew uh, ratio is essentially at one-for-one one on all our vessels, but very small, very intimate. It's a lifestyle brand. I always say cruisers cruise, sailing is a lifestyle, and that's what we kind of touch on here. Our pillars are touching on culture, cuisine, art, history, and wellness. So that's what our guests can expect when they travel with us. How many ships are in your fleet? How many do you have? So we have three. We have the Sea Cloud, the Sea Cloud 2, which was built in 2001, and that's the sister ship to the original Sea Cloud, and then in 2021, we built a modern-day sailboat, uh, the Sea Cloud Spirit. Now, this is kind of for your luxury cruiser that likes the spa and likes all the amenities. They'll find that on Sea Cloud Spirit. Fabulous ship. It's our largest in the fleet. I use that term lightly because you can take basically our guests on all three vessels and add them up. And we're smaller than a lifeboat on one of the big cruise shots. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> well, so then where do you sail? Uh, so right now we're in the winter, right? So we're in the Caribbean, and then the Sea Cloud Spirit does Costa Rica and Panama. Uh, in a few weeks, uh, we will transition. We'll actually deadhead the vessel. So for people that aren't familiar with that term, we travel empty with no guests. We do the transatlantic back to the Mediterranean where we start our spring and summer season, sailing all over the Med. How do those size ships handle the open sea? Um, that's a great question, and a lot of times people are worried that they're going to get seasick on board. The great thing with sailboats, and if your callers are avid sailors, they'll know we sit lower in the water, and we grab the wind, we lift to a side to where we're kind of cutting through the water rather than waving or riding the waves back and forth. So if you have your sea legs, you'll have no problem on board. What's the food service like? Well, that's a good question, and uh, we do a lot of specialty moments. Uh, we have partnerships uh, with Michelin chefs that will come on board and curate some of our menus. Outside of that, our average cuisine that's served every day by our chefs is a five-star, uh, five-plate dinner. Uh, lunch is fabulous outside when the weather's promoting. And then breakfast, we offer uh, breakfast either downstairs in the dining room or upstairs on the Lido deck. The Lido deck on all three vessels is what I consider the heart of the vessels. Why? What's that like? That's where your bar is. That's where your nightly entertainment is. Um, it's where everybody kind of congregates to at the end of the day and just enjoys a uh, libation. 
So where do you, when you stop, um, are, are they the same ports that the big cruise ships go? What is my off-ship experience like when I'm sailing with you guys? Yeah, sure. So the beauty with our size and our tonnage is we get to go into those smaller ports. So while you might see us sail out of a St. Martin next to uh, four or five large vessels, we're going to head to off-the-beaten-path places where they can't get into. So, for instance, a few weeks ago, um, unfortunately, I had to go to Society Island, where the only people next to us were local sailboats that were kind of traveling around the Caribbean, and then obviously going into islands like St. Bart's and some of the smaller areas like St. Lucia. What are your ships? Um, and then, in, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, I'll finish that question, but I'm happy to hear what you had to say. But what do your ships do when the wind is not uh, very windy? Yeah. Um, so we have motor on board. We're fully capable of uh, traveling along at a certain knot speed to where we can assure that our guests will get to where we need to go on our itinerary schedule. Uh, we're talking to Kevin Smith, Sea Cloud Cruises. So um, what are the itineraries like? Are they seven-day ventures or 10 days? How long do you usually go out with uh, with your crew and your passengers? Yeah, so we have four night vessel, uh, sailings, and then we go all the way up to 16 nights on the transatlantic. So you can really find something for your speed. Okay. Uh, I interrupted you. You were saying something about the stops or the service. What was that? Oh, uh, Yeah. Uh, so one of my favorite trips is our Malta round trip. Everybody's familiar with Malta, but we spend a week sailing around these little tiny fishing villages in, in Sicily. Um, and when I showcase that itinerary, it's the places that nobody's ever been. And quite frankly, I have a hard time pronouncing, so I will try to avoid doing that. Um, but just a great itinerary, something that's completely unique. And I encourage everybody to visit seacloudcruises.com. We just came out with a fabulous brochure. We're in the process of putting our 2025 brochure together. So please visit our website, reach out to your travel advisor, um, and we can provide you with any details you need. You're not doing the Great Lakes, huh? No, not anymore. You have done that before, though, huh? Well, no. I, you and I spoke previously when I was with another company. Ah, uh, yeah, um, when sure, we were on the Great sure, Lakes, sure. But no, um, I see we do that... have a sailing in 2025 that's out of uh, Miami, in March. So love for you to come down and see the vessel, maybe do this in person um, and film it. Greece, you guys will sail from Malta to Athens, Syracuse, Sicily, uh, places like that. It says here, I'm reading um, Syros in Greece, Athens. Don't even, uh, so are there some places you do go and don't go that make that trip unique? Well, you know, a cruiser always thinks of Greece as, hey, listen, we have to go, um, you know, to, to uh, Montenegro, uh, not Montenegro, I'm sorry. Um, Mykonos. Mykonos, yes. Thank you for the help there. Um, where we're going to smaller areas off the beaten path, a new Greece to cruisers. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I mean, I've been to Mykonos and Santorini. Those are lovely, but um, I, I don't feel the need to get back to there again. I would like to try some <laughs> different stops. And, and trust me, the, the Greece is my favorite uh, destination. Um, okay, and one more thing, though. I mean, maybe our listeners are just hearing about um, sea cloud cruises for the first time. This is a fleet of three sailing ships. You said about what was it, 60-some people will be on board as passengers? Is that right? 64 to 136, depending and, on the vessel. And then I get, and obviously I have to fly to the port of call. Is it always Miami, or do I have to, I guess I would be flying to Athens or someplace like that? It, it depends on where the trip is. Huh? 
Yeah, it depends on where we're obviously embarking from. We do have some great new itineraries coming up in January. Um, that is uh, Puerto Rico round trip. So easy, easy airlift uh, out of Chicago. And I wonder what the post-pandemic cruising world is like. Has that business recovered? Are people, uh, how's business for you guys, Kevin? Yeah, John, business is great right now. We're in the middle of a wave season, so we have our strongest offer out in the marketplace. We have 25% off on the Spirit, and we have uh, category upgrades on C-Cloud and C-Cloud 2. Um, I can tell you, uh, Mark, in our reservations department that leads the way, has been a busy man these past few weeks. By the way, what are the uh, size of the staterooms? Is are, are they comparable to uh, the ships that I've been on before? Um, you know, in in Europe and elsewhere, the staterooms uh, aren't huge, but frankly, they're. I think they're pretty clever. You get a lot of uh, living in those small staterooms on these boats. What's it like on yours? Yeah, so same, very similar to what you'd find on kind of the mid level of the luxury ocean liners, right? With the private verandas. Um, a comfortable sitting area, the full bed, if you will, for two people, uh, closet space for everyone, and our bathrooms are really what make it. We have fabulous bathrooms. I know that sounds silly, but when you're spending, you know, seven to ten days somewhere, that's key. We have great tub. We have ample space. It's not like you usually find on a river cruise or an ocean cruise. The bathrooms are very spacious. These cruises uh, on the ships uh can run anywhere from 1300 to 10 12,000 uh, per person double occupancy for a week to 10 days are you priced on the lower end or the upper end of that uh, so we're we're in the luxury sector so our prices can range from anywhere between you know 700 to a thousand dollars per person per day an all-inclusive product on board yeah, uh, that all-inclusive is uh, the way to go. Uh, Kevin, it's uh, nice to talk to you. I've seen these ships. I have not seen them in person, but I was just clicking around when I heard you would come on our show, and I think they look fantastic. They really look fun. They look different. Kevin Smith is with Sea Cloud Cruises. You can click on SeaCloud.com. Nice to talk to you, Kevin. Thanks for your help today. Thank you, John. More business news on the Wintrust Business Lunch with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. A new report says Chicago has the most venture capital-backed startups founded by women compared to other U.S. cities. According to World Business Chicago, nearly 36% of the 300 venture-backed startups had at least one woman founder. Nearly 25% had one founder of color. The report says that puts Chicago in the first and second spots, respectively, for venture-backed startups founded by women and people of color. It also says those startups raised about $2.9 billion in funding over the past five years. For the first time in the 177-year history of the Chicago Tribune, its journalists are on strike to protest job and wage cuts made by the paper's owner, hedge fund Alden Global Capital. The 24-hour walkout includes Tribune editors, reporters, photographers, and designers. They were picketing in front of the Freedom Center, where the paper's offices are located. They're asking people not to read the Tribune during their strike. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. We talk about tech a lot on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Talking about it more with us is Nuan Samarawiwa, who is the COO of P33. How much of that did I get right, Nuan? 90%. <laughs> that's not bad for me. And <laughs> yeah, welcome to the show. Tell us about Thank your business. You. What do you all do? Uh, P33, we're um, kind of an economic development agency that really focuses on how to make Chicago a tier one 
tech and innovation hub by the year 2033 that's driving inclusive economic growth. So whether it comes to our workforce, whether it comes to our entrepreneurs and our capital, or whether it comes to the, the federal, the state government and the city government and how we make sure we are uh, winning, placing winning bets today that so will make sure the industries of the future land in Chicago and Illinois. That's kind of the main focus of our organization. Understood. I want to talk about the Good Jobs Challenge, but just tell me a little bit more about the organization. So is that more like an association of businesses and academic entities, or are you a for-profit corporation? We're a nonprofit, privately funded organization um, founded by the Civic Committee of the Commercial Club of Chicago. Um, and we kind of bridge together. Uh, so we work a lot with both the corporate sectors, the corporations, the venture capital ecosystem, uh, the nonprofit sector, the uh, academic institutions around Chicago and Illinois, um, along with uh, the state and city government. So we try to bridge together the different constituent groups that are, that are responsible for how you make a great tech and innovation hub. And is the key to that keeping the employees, the, the brains here, the people here, the students here, or is it attracting the businesses here? Which is the chicken? Which is the egg? That's yeah, a great question. I, look, I think it's both, um, but I do think that talent is incredibly key. Because obviously talent will follow where the great jobs are, but the companies will put down roots where there's great talent. And so if I, I had to pick, pick one, uh, I would probably lean on the talent. And we have three world-class research institutions in yeah. Illinois. Um, and you can't create that in other cities. And so that's a huge bedrock of our, of our city and our state is that we produce incredible talent, incredible technical talent in Illinois. Um, and that's why a lot of companies, we have, I think, 36, 37, Fortune 500 companies in Illinois. That's the primary reason they're here is because they have an abundance of talent that they can access. Are those three hubs the U of I, Urbana, I guess, maybe UIC, and then Northwestern and the University of Chicago? So the three uh, tier one research institutions, the University of Chicago, Northwestern, and the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Yeah. So what's this Good Jobs Challenge then? What is that? So the Good Jobs Challenge is a competitive grant awarded to 32 cities in the United States by the Department of Commerce. And the goal is to enhance U.S. competitiveness in industries of national significance. And so in the case of Chicago's bid, how do you place Chicagoans into good quality jobs in four industries, IT, advanced manufacturing, healthcare, and transportation distribution and logistics? And so P33, we own and administer the information technology uh, sector within that grant. And so we have $3 million in federal funds to cover the cost of technology apprenticeship training um, for companies who want to pursue tech talent that may not have the traditional um, degree that you would typically look for, but do have the skills, but they may not have the degree and they may not have the social capital to get onto the ladder. So we're very much focused on Chicago's south and west sides in this bid. But the, the goal of the grant is to, is to try to produce and to place more people with um, backgrounds who may not have the degree into high-paying, family-sustaining wages. So are these scholarships then? Are these to send people to schools, or is it to help fund the job for a person for in-corporate training? It's a great question. It's to fund the training that we call pre-apprenticeship training. So it's to fund the training that happens before an individual would go into a company and do a six- to nine-month apprenticeship. So step one would be three to four months of technical training and software development, cybersecurity, project management. 
and and the, the grant will cover those the cost of those first three to four months of training, which is typically provided by nonprofits who specialize in training on these types of skills. Yeah. Step two is the apprenticeship, six to nine months. And at the end of six to nine months, the company will have had a, a close look at that individual for those six to nine months of training, and they make a decision on whether they try to convert them into a full-time hire. Lucky the company that gets you to pay for this kind of training. I, uh, <coughs> I, I suppose they are as much the beneficiaries as the, the young people. They are to some degree. I think they still have to pay for the apprenticeship training when it's six to nine months kind of on-the-job training uh, that they're paying for. Uh, um, but that upfront training, yeah, the goal is to kind of reduce that, that initial hurdle to, to pursuing this because it is different for a company from the traditional hiring models. And so the federal government is trying to incentivize companies to think about this differently and to hire differently. What do you want to happen? Do you want, what do you need right now then, uh, Nuan? Do you need people to sign up? What, what can we do for you today? Well, thank you for asking that question. We need more employers to come to the table to want to pursue tech talent in a different way, specifically to pursue tech talent who may not have a degree, um, but may have incredible skills, but may just not have the opportunity to, to kind of access the types of careers that typically you'll see in some of these large companies. And so we have a lot of companies. We had an event yesterday where we had 50 companies there, but we need 100, we need 200 companies to come forward to start to look at how they pursue talent differently so that more people in our city, particularly on the south and west side of Chicago, can have more on-ramps and access into a, a technology career, career that we know mm. has highly transferable skills, it, it has higher starting salaries, and um, you know, it, it leads to family-sustaining wages. Well, if we want to be a world-class hub by 2033, then... We need people thinking out of the box like this. So P33 is doing that. P33Chicago.com is the website. You can click on there to find out more. P33Chicago.com. Nuan, fascinating. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.